Hello, 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 you. Welcome to another episode of Majoring in the Miners podcast. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast and hope you guys appreciate it. It is a podcast where we talk about how the majority of people focus on the minor things in life. Your exquisite hosts, as usual, Mahi and Louis. In this episode of our podcast, we had Dan Kassin, an amazing coach, trainer, and competitor in powerlifting uh, joining us. Dan brought a lot of insight uh, about competing, how to deal with injuries, how to recover from injuries, how to train people for competition despite their injuries, the art of coaching, the human element of coaching. It was just an amazing talk. It was so good to listen to him and learn from him. And he brings a lot of, lot of, lot of good val- information and value. And uh, we were so lucky to have him on our podcast. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to this episode. Without further ado, here's Dan. So Kassan, to add, to, to drive this conversation to something with more value than his, <laughs> than his, than his mumble. I, I was ready. But He's yeah. been waffle for the entire hour, <laughs> whatever. Can you, no, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your strength well, and fitness philosophy? My name's Dan Carson, uh, based out of the UK. Um, personal trainer, strength coach. Background is predominantly powerlifting for a long time. I have had like experience doing body composition, strongman, all sorts. Um, as a kid growing up, initially wasn't the most athletic. <laughs> Played rugby, wasn't the best at it, but could still play. Uh, I could run into things. That was a really good thing. That was about all I was good for. Um, athletics, dabbled in pole vault, shot put, and uh, went on to uni to go and play rugby again. But then discovered kind of Lifting weights while I was there. Um, actually worked out I was pretty good at deadlifting without much without much effort. Um, was a skinny kid, put some weight on, trained hard, was good. I think about 30 kilos gained at university, so that wasn't too bad. Um, so yeah, then trained as a PT coming out of uni. Um, started training people mainly for strength purposes, but also to improve like uh, body composition because I think that people get lost in just monitoring body fat they forget that you know if you are able to do stuff your physique will then end up reflecting that as long as you don't eat like an asshole like and that is a temptation I remember like when uh, when I first started out one of the like the the go-tos in ter- for gaining weight was go mad do you guys remember that yeah all the milk a day that was awful <laughs> I think I lasted two weeks before it was like, no, I need to stop this because <laughs> it just is, it did not end well. So over the years, uh, tried and tested lots of different th- bits of information, particularly as the information's evolved. Um, I've been, I've been doing this now nine years this year, uh, training people. So got a fair few hours under my belt. Spent a lot of time working out of a gym that we did free PT. So you paid you know, 38 quid a month and you got one free PT a week. So I was doing, I was crushing like 35, 40 free PTs a week. Hmm. So I got lots and lots of reps on my belt, worked out what works, what doesn't work. And then um, 
then I discovered powerlifting, and that was that was a really fun bit. So I started competing, did my first did my first two comps, then hired myself a coach because I couldn't figure out squatting. Figure out deadlifting. We won't talk about bench. Um, <laughs> benches. We will. We will have to talk about bench, but not just yet. Um, so then got into powerlifting, competed for a few years, and then I had some people approach me, and they wanted to compete as well. Um, one of these people then, over the, over the course of about three years, uh, training her, went from having never done a competition before to winning uh, 2018 IPF Worlds. So that was a, that was a hell of a, a box to tick off. Coaching at that level is a whole other game. Like it's, but at the same time, the fundamentals are always still the same. You just got to keep your lifter calm, in control, and just do as they're told. And that's the great. That's the easy bit. That's the easy bit to be honest. Um, yeah. Since then, done more body compositions work, more powerlifting. Got back into my own training. Nine months ago, ten months ago, started pushing things back, and we should see a return to the platform this year, which will be nice. Do you know exactly when you're going to compete this year? Plan, hopefully, COVID permitting, is August. Um, okay. So in 2014 and 16, I competed at Boss of Bosses, which is mm -hmm. Dan Green's competition. Yeah. So the plan is to go and compete there again, but if COVID does not permit, then I will find a comp in the UK at the appropriate time. Deliver probably, well, fingers crossed, the best performance yet. Hmm. So it should, be good. should be really good. Uh, have you having said that, like, it just made me kind of think, because of COVID, if you're going to do competitions in the UK, because I know like uh, one of my friends, she's competing in the British Opens for weightlifting, and it's yeah. all happening virtually. So like, do you think that your competition will also be virtual? Like, do you, what do you think about virtual competitions? Uh, so they have, there's an app called Braun, which allows you like log your top sets and stuff like that. But I think that there's an element of powerlifting comps that is missing by doing it online. Weightlifting and particularly even IPF competitions are a lot more formal. We'll go with yeah, we'll go with formal. So all the comp, all the federations particularly, um, are a lot, they're a lot less formal, so they don't turn the music down when you go to lift, which is always nice. Um, so the idea will be to compete somewhere like there because the idea is to make uh, a transition back to raps again for a long time away from it. The last time I used raps was like 2016. So, uh, competing in, in a rap federation, see what we can do. Yeah. Well, I think that from a competition point of view, uh, yeah, there will be something missing from doing a virtual competition. So, I think they will hang fire and wait to do them in person. Uh, you know, like the competition atmosphere itself uh, is a little bit different. And I feel like virtual will miss that out. Because, like, I was watching Rugby the other day. Uh, and I normally don't. I just happen to be watching it. I'm not, like, I don't know much about rugby. Uh, but uh, the stadium was empty and they were still playing uh, crowd noises because, like, it brings yeah. uh, players to that state of, like, you know, being able to compete because if they don't, like, they just don't get as aroused to be able to do what they're doing. So yeah. I was kind of thinking, would they do the same thing for, like, if they do virtual uh, competitions for power? Because, you know, with powerlifting, I'm assuming you need to get that energy at one point. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, as you're warming up, you start to... Your arousal levels definitely go up, particularly when you know you are, right, I'm three lifters out, two lifters out. Then you start dialing it in. 
Um, definitely don't want to get too hyped too soon. I've seen it happen. And I, yeah. I've, as well, I have done that. I've got too amped up too soon. Um, lessons learned. But from um, the atmosphere itself, you can't beat it. Because even though, yes, everybody is there to compete with themselves, there is still that camaraderie there. Mm. Particularly if you're there with somebody like a coach or a handball or whatever, you can't beat that atmosphere. And it's not the same doing it in your garage. I can tell you that now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, it makes me kind of like admire you. I don't know if, like, especially when COVID started, this happened a lot in strongmen. You know, they were doing. Uh, breaking world records in their gyms and like some of them i would see them miss lifts that they've done like in a competition before and in my head i was like this person's just by himself inside their room probably he's not getting as uh hyped up 100 percent. yeah i mean last year when we had the the i don't call it a break from covid but that's the best way i can not put it we had a break from covid they did manage to get some competitions on at the end of last year in some feds so hopefully with things transitioning towards a more freer world we'll go with, um, we should see some comps come back to life. That should be good. That's great. That's great. And before I got interrupted by Louis, I was going to actually go to our, the main topic that you and I had discussed. And, you know, we, we talked about like the hyper complexity when it comes to the strength realm. So I want to, I want you to talk about that right but also like i want to do the other side as well because i feel like there's like this side of either people make things too complex to kind oh, of smoke bomb it and like hide things from stuff or like just sound smart but from the other end we're on this pursuit of simplifying things to the point that it's just too simple now it's just out of context it's just kind of like stupid uh, but not in strength realm more like PTing, like and like social media stuff so i want to like kind of Talk to me on this spectrum of first hyper complexity and then we're going to go to the other end. So, uh, I'm going to give you a really good piece, like snippet from hyper complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, years ago, trying to figure out, like, this is how we want, this is how we're going to train. Okay. So, when you like, you have squatting, benching, deadlifting, but you can't just hammer the same variations. That's like too simple an approach, and you're smashing the same range of motion, and that's how you get overuse injuries and all that kind of rubbish that puts people out of action far too soon. So how do you mitigate that? Put variations in. How do you strengthen things with the bench press? So like triceps, pecs, all that kind of stuff. So we had a, a day of the week where we were doing volume for close grip floor press. Now, still kind of find our way through what's going to work, what isn't going to work. Started off with close grip floor press on a football bar. So angled handles, takes a little bit of stress off the shoulders, thinking that's great. Bit of injury prevention, if you want to call it that. Load mitigation through the shoulders and takes a bit of strain off external rotation. Then you're using a closer grip. So more triceps because more elbow flexion. Great. Then me thinking more is better. As we know now, more isn't better. Better is better, to quote Jordan Jello. You know, I decided to chuck 20 kilo chains on either side. Now, I coined this phrase of like, which is that's drowning a wet sponge. You know, you've got the sponge wet, you've got the stimulus you already want from it, but then you're just pouring more and more on it. You don't need to do it. If I'd have just pushed the close grip floor press, or even just a floor press, I'd have probably got the same adaptation, if not greater, 
and chucking these chains and all these funny bits and bats on and making stuff look overly complicated. Yeah. There's definitely a trend in the last six to 12 months with a greater direction towards biomechanics and uh, people not quite playing the physics game as much, but definitely playing the biomechanics game more so. That people want to use all these incredibly complicated and quite arduous variations to get stuff to work. Mm-hmm. In reality, for example, when we look at squatting, if you stand on one leg and you squat, so Bulgarian split squats, I know you love them. I don't know about you, love it. Well, love them, kind of. You know, if you can squat on one leg effectively and you can train hard and you can train different variations of squat within reason, you're going to make progress. You see people doing all these hyper-complicated reverse banded, banded things and all this stuff that doesn't need to be there. Yeah. And it's just a case of they are, again, drowning that wet sponge in overstimulants. And all that happens is they underload and they make no progress. And they think that the, the, the problem is in some uh, fabled perfect routine or perfect balance of volume and whatnot, when actually the thing that they're missing is a bit of simplicity and a bit of hard work. Like I know because I've been guilty of trying to find all these wonderful, fantastic variations. And you only learn really by doing it and failing miserably and then going back to the basics. Because the basics, even though it sounds simple, they aren't because they are in themselves complex enough. And just doing them better and getting better at doing them, whether it's by improving your skill or honing in on specifics within that movement, you can get mm-hmm. tons from just a high bar squat or a low bar squat or a front squat. It doesn't have to be hyper complex. It doesn't have to be super complex to be effective. Yeah. I think, um, you know, because I, I, I like the, the fact that you brought up like biomechanics as well. It's good to know and it is good to like, you know, be aware of that, but don't try to match, I don't know, the resistant curves and strength profiles for <laughs> everything. Like, yeah, you said it. I've seen some weird ass squads with like these pins that like falls off and like those videos. And I'm just like, okay, now you're just making something simple, like too complex. Like just go and do something else. Like if you if you're really caring about like matching it, then just use a machine. That's why we have machine or like you know cables and stuff like that that can make that for you. Squat for the sake of squatting. Exactly. Like in in context, if you're using. Um... Load releases or whatever, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, you have some mm. kind of like carryover. What you're talking so small, when mm. realistically, like you could probably just squat with the bar, like not just the empty bar, obviously, but you could probably just squat with straight straight weight and get the same adaptation. Like if you're trying to desensitize yourself to that kind of load, like understand why? Why are you trying to desensitize yourself? Do heavier loads. I mean, even in the even in comp ramp, like until until like the last part of the taper, where you've done your overload work, which can be done. It doesn't have to be done. There's more than one way to peak for a competition. If you have done some reverse band work to feel what that third attempt is going to be, and then feel what your second attempt is going to be, then that's fine. But it's when people are also using like 
bands and reverse bands and they're like 24 weeks out from a competition. It's like, why? Mm-hmm. You're going to fall apart in the bottom of a squat. If you're 16 weeks out, you should not be doing reverse bands. Like picking exercise, it, uh, the timing, I guess, is, is very important yeah. as well, right? Like, also, like something that. done for Instagram clout. Like, yeah. Everyone wants to be seen to be doing more than they actually are to a degree. They do less, but then they want to show like they're doing more. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, if people are spending their time doing stuff like that. They look, they're kind of combing the sand as opposed to turning over the bigger rocks and just getting better at the actual movement. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. we also spoke about, I mean, you also brought up about hyper simplicity, which is the other side of the coin of literally people coming in and just doing what they've said. Hmm. And I briefly touched on that before. Like, you, you can, yes, you can get inordinately strong just doing the squat bench and deadlift repeatedly. But we know that just practicing those lifts, the first thing that happens is a neurological adaptation. And realistically, after you've got that neurological adaptation, you need to do some volume and you need to build some muscle. If you're going to put weight, if you're going to put weight on that bar, you need to put some muscle on. At the end of the day, what, what produces force? The nervous system allows it to happen by coordinating it, but more muscle will produce more yeah. force. Exactly. And so hammering the same ranges, 20... 26 weeks of the year where you deload and then go in again, you know, there's only so much you'll be able to get from the, those same variations with the same volumes and trying to eke out a kilo here or a kilo there at yeah. RP six and a half or whatever. It's pretty much rate of diminishing returns, right? If you just keep like doing the same thing. Exactly. It, the definition of insanity, doing the same <laughs> thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome at the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give Louis a chance to ask questions because, like, I normally <laughs> kind of just like block him out and that's talk because I like talking. So, yeah, Louis. Yeah, he, he speaks more, but he speaks less, actually. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Mahi's the best. Uh, no, uh, I wanted to kind of ask you, so what's your, like, how do you train or coach a power lifter through a season? So from the, from the beginning all the way up to peaking and finally competition, what's your sort of strategy on doing so? so? Typically speaking, we would use a top set back off principle for major lifts. Also, we would use straight sets and kind of low end work for the big stuff and higher rep accessories. Because end of the day, the big stuff is where you want to be able to express strength and start to build it by doing one through sixes, maybe as much as eight, or rarely, because nobody really likes doing sets of eight on squats or deadlifts. But they do have value. After that, you move on to your accessories and you might be doing like eight to 25 reps. Definitely nobody wants to do that, but that's the stuff that's going to keep you healthy. And build that muscle that we were just talking about that's going to make that total go up. End of the day, most powerlifters start in the wrong weight class. They start far too light or far too fat for that weight class, and they have to find that balance between being jacked and being strong. At the end of the day, like if you're like my height, I need to move up a weight class. 
I need to start getting heavier. But I'm not going to rush the process. Like that being said, I'm sure there are lifters out there that are too heavy for the weight class that they're trying to get down to, whether it's by water cutting or whatever, and they need to focus on getting leaner. So how are they going to do that? Bodybuilding work, diet properly, not just do the same stuff. So from off season, we would kind of work through variations. So we kind of always start with some kind of variation on the low bar squat because we don't want to be putting excess pressure on those external rotators of the shoulder. So spend, as we know, like spending time in a low bar squat, like for 20, 26 weeks at a time or 52 weeks at a time is no good for anyone's shoulders, right? So high bar, safety bar, front squats, those are great variations and they're only one to two steps away from the competition. Like, and that's one thing like we have across the whole board. Think about steps away from the competition movement and as we get closer, we bring it closer to that competition movement. You don't have to be doing low bar squats all year round. Just steps away and then know there's a planned progression to go, right, okay, so I'm going to go front squats, then I'm going to go high bar, then I'm going to go safety bar, then I'm going to go low bar, then you're good to go. Another thing you can do is you could go safety bar almost all year round and you might be sleeves from sleeves for some of the year, then sleeves and chains. Then you might go straight bar, low bar, sleeves and cha- sleeves and chains, and then low bar with wraps. Then you've got that graded stimulus over a period of time, and you're not smashing down the same ranges all the time. You can start to build your weaknesses. Typically speaking, lifters tend to fall apart in the same places. They don't need that much individualization. It's the timing that's important, though. Does that lifter need low bar squats now probably not does that lifter need high bar squats i would argue most lifters should be spending more time doing high bar and safety bar than they're doing low bar once once you've got the skill of squatting it's not so different just a slightly different sequence of events uh, whether you're breaking at the knees more whether you're more hinged whether you're more upright you know it's playing with that sequence of events that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then, and uh, go ahead. Once we've done all the top set back offs and we've kind of got ourselves to a position where we're ready to peak, then we start to build. So there's two options when it comes to peaking. Really, really, either continue the top set back off, and you go like, say you've done four weeks at fives, four weeks at fours, four weeks at threes, and then peaking time six week peak of like one by one, seven, eight, nine, one by one, nine, 10, taper. There's loads of ways you can do it. There's more than one way to skin a cap. It's what's going to benefit the lift the most psychologically and what they're training around as well. I train on my own in my garage. I will not be taking a single at 10 low bar wraps on my own because that is a huge, huge risk. However, will I take multiple doubles and triples leading up to a competition at weight that's going to make me feel really confident? Hell yeah, I will. Confidence is the biggest underrated value when going into a competition. People forget about the mental side of things. If you go into that competition, you are feeling strong as hell. You might never have touched that weight before, but you hit 20 kilos less than it, and it was an RP8, and it's 
built on you're still full of fatigue, you're like, yeah, I'll take that. So look at the lifter's psychological profile and build their taper or peaking plan based off what that looks like. You always have to be heavy singles. There, that's it. it's really, really simple. It doesn't mm -hmm. really get that complicated. Once you take, the, you know, we taper out accessories as you go through, keep the accessories high as long as we can to preserve muscle. And then once they come out, then we have a restoration phase after competition and then we go back in. And uh, do you ever do you ever um, also utilize single leg uh, limb movements oh, in your training? All the time. Like, because we know if you can get good on one leg, when you put two on the ground, it's mm -hmm. gone. Split squats, lunges, reverse lunges, single leg RDLs, all variations on that kind of idea. The great foundation movements that will help anybody get stronger. And do you do them, do you prescribe them as a warm up before the main lift or do you do them afterward as accessory movements? Uh, so if we're in prep, they're always going to be accessory movements. Uh, warm up drills like movement preparation. I'm not going to give somebody a, like a, a hard Bulgarian split squat to begin with. We're going to see where that person's up to and how that person reacts to training. One thing we tend to do before anything is we look at, look at the lift. And we go, right, okay, get the empty bar on your back and slow it down. If you can if you can perform it slowly, and we look at a tempo squat, it might be like a five or six second descent. If we can see something's not quite right, then we address that. And then we revisit the bar. Then we come back to it and see if it's corrected itself. Then we start to add load and adjust as we go through the process. All right. Mike, back to you. Yeah, so I was going to go back to the, and I love that you touched on it, uh, confidence, right, before the competition. And, and I think, like, because my, like, when I think of variety, is that, like, some, the, the need for variety arises when the person, like, obviously, you want to keep them away from the specific lift as much as you can, but you still need them to, need to give them those, like, you know, uh, PRs in a sense that like you know they just feel good about themselves because they're not testing that last rep like you know they're not going under the uh, low bar so just like give them something that they can kind of again progress and go through it and then PR like in their head it doesn't have to be a crazy thing but like it just gives them that boost and then they're carrying this on through like block by block and then as I said before competition they're they're there they're ready um, yeah. taking on the bar and like you know get something done because it made sense when I heard this and also I get it from like the, cause I, I come from a martial arts background. So like, if you feel bad about a fight, don't fight, right? If you feel bad about the bar, do not get under that bar in my opinion, or like just get yourself checked. Like also like, this is the thing is that if you can string four or five great training cycles together, you never miss a rep. You're going to get under that bar at competition. You'd be like, no, I've got this. Yeah. If you're missing reps here or there, your confidence will start to dwindle. And you do not want to tap into that. You want to keep that as high as possible all the way through the training blocks. So that when you get under the bar, you're like, no, I've got this. Regardless of whether that lift, that person is a more, more anxious lifter or they're not at all. Build confidence and that will get new PBs. And how do you get, how do you build somebody's confidence? You get PBs and you get them sub-maximally. There's no point blowing a gasket week in, week out because that's the quickest way to stall out. Mm -hmm. Love that. And I'm glad you said it because someone in this call needed to hear that, right? And obviously it's not <laughs> me. 
<laughs> Yo, I train submax, okay? Just, yeah, just pointing out, like, just talking about injuries, this is a good segue to kind of ask Dan. Um, I know you're in, like, a pec strain, was it? Yeah, that was right, a, so. not the worst thing, but it wasn't the best. Um, so, what do we do? Benching, a little bit cocky, shifted to the left, strain my pec. Hmm. I hate bench. I don't hate I don't hate bench. I hate bench, so I get you. It's okay, we all hate the bench. <laughs> unless you've got We're like, all deadlifters. Unless you've got like three inch arms. Yeah. So like pec strain was pretty rough. Didn't really know how bad it was. And issue was as well. Felt it and then still went onto my top set. But you learn. Okay. So what did I do? So we took a couple of days, a couple of days rest. I knew and I know the thing to do. Because I've done it time, not for myself, but I've seen it happen. I've seen it done before and you know what to do. Yeah, let it rest. And then you have to get blood flow to it. Everybody's always like, oh, rest it, ice it. No, that does not make sense. Yeah. Think about it from a common sense perspective. Why would you sit on it, ice it, and then leave it alone? If you're going to recover from an injury, you need to get nutrients to it. How do you get nutrients to it? Blood flow. What do you need to do then? Move it. So I stood in my garage with a tiny pair of band doing peck flies. 100 or so a day. And all that did was it just got enough blood to it to help me start moving. Within seven days, I started benching again. Albeit, it was like 50 kilos. 60 kilos and started started to ramp up in in load. But six weeks later, I'm back under my relatively heavy loads, mm. and albeit yeah, the reps have dropped off, but I'm in a much better position than if I was than if I left it alone. And that's the thing is that you need to have a tenacity with it. In fact, not to just sit there and let it let it stew an injury. You need to get it moving. See if it comes to a strain, you need to get it moving and you need to work on it. Find ranges where it doesn't hurt. Like if it hurts through the mid-range, don't go mid-range. Spend more time in lengthened position. If it hurts in the shortened position, don't take it to the shortened position to begin with. But over time, you need to expose it to those different ranges of tissue tolerance. Because as we know, like injuries happen because load exceeds tissue tolerance. That's one reason why it happens. The other, answer is that, the other answer is that it could just be a freak accident. But nine times out of ten, tissue tolerance. Mm-hmm. Benching, you never re... We spend so much time in the, that lengthened position, particularly if you pause benching as well. We don't really spend too much time shortened. But you don't need to, really. But you should expose it to that, that end range at some point through something just to keep things moving. So... The biggest lesson that from there was just A, be sensible, B, get the volume in, get the blood flow and feed it. Don't stop eating. Just because your activity has gone down, do not stop eating. You can get less fat afterwards, but just keep the nutrients going. But like from a, a bigger injury perspective, um, a couple of years back, I was full of fortunate. No, in fact, yes, we are all full of fortunate. A client of mine, She's, uh, she's now 82 years old. Bless her. Uh, no, she is the hardest person on the planet. Like, 
So, uh, background on this person. She used to train horses in Canada. A horse pulled. Tore a bicep from the top down. Didn't have surgery because she thought, eh, won't affect me too much. Carried on training horses. Probably 99% of the population, if that happened, would go, nah, I'm not going near a horse ever again. Yeah. So, uh, and then she's had a couple of other significant injuries, such as she's got steel rods in her spine to keep her spine from falling apart. This is an 82-year-old woman. Two years ago, she did her first ever powerlifting competition. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, that's intense. So, like, and this woman's, like, phenomenal. So she's, uh, she's quite 45 kilos, I think it was. She benched 22 kilos, 22 and a half kilos. Sick. Wait for it. Deadlifted, 85 kilos. <laughs> yeah. With her bicep tear? Yeah, because she just overhanded it. Yeah. Oh. Holds the bar and picks it up. Oh, insane like if I have a bad day I'm thinking like oh I don't really want to train today I think what would she do crack on and get to work that's exactly yeah. that's a great mindset I want to do that when I'm 85 man like if I can do what I do like what she does Jesus I'll be a happy oh, yeah. 85 year old so a couple of years back um, she had to have her second knee replacement hmm. so this was six months prior to her first powerlifting competition. Obviously, she hadn't signed up for it. She'd talked about it, but she didn't want to press the subject because she didn't want me to think she was being daft about it, which mm. I would never turn around and say. Because if someone wants to do it, we will find a way to make it work. Because goals are important to people. So, she's there and she goes, I'm do a powerlifting competition, right? Okay. And you've just had a, a, a knee replacement. Physio said, I'm good to go in the gym. Okay, so how do we work back from that? This woman can't, like, can barely bend a knee. So we started with box squats with multiple dowels. So we're having dowel in each hand, supporting, using the dowel as a guide rod to go up and down. And she was. We, what we did is, is we started with a high box, like really high. And we just worked that box down over a number of sessions. She come to see me three times a week, so you wouldn't believe how much progress she could make. So we'd work down in box with two dowels. Then we'd increase the height of the box again, take a dowel away. Then we'd go, right, let's decrease that box again, get and if it what and if the reps weren't perfect, we stayed there. We just hammered it and hammered it and hammered it. And then we came and then we came away from the box. We used a TRX. We've got a squatting with a body weight supported with a TRX. Yeah, they're great, they're great tools uh, to use, particularly in a rehab context. It gives you so much freedom and it gives you support on the body weight and gives them actual awareness of where they're supposed to be in space. And then it was probably 12 weeks later, we got us, we got up under a bar. But you know, just one bicep. She has terrible external rotation. She's 80 years old. And you won't believe, like, you can, how many 80 year olds do you see with perfect spinal position? None. So, obviously, you've got to deal with the kyphosis. How do you get somebody who's here to here? 
takes time. So what do we do? We stay. We start with a safety squat bar. Then so she doesn't have to get the arms back here. Just mm-hmm. we did probably did ninety five percent percent of a comp rep on a safety squat bar. So it just wasn't worth taking it to here. What's the difference in skill to go from here to here? Minimal. Particularly bearing in mind every single squat with a four count descent just to make sure she stayed in the right position. So like if if we've spent so much time, like we did 90% of the comp rep on that safety yeah. squat part. So going from there to there, it doesn't take that much difference in skill because it's still a squat. Mm-hmm. There will be a little bit in cha- of change, but not to the point that's going to completely render any squatting on a safety squat bar pointless. Put the bar on the back, we tempoed everything, stayed very, very light loads, and we just went by bar speed every day and how she felt. The big thing that people miss out on this is it's the questions beforehand. Every session started with basically nothing short of an interrogation, like, how are you feeling today? How's the knee feeling? How's your shoulder feeling today? And this is like, I wasn't joking before by saying that this person is like the hardest person I've ever met because... You know, you can say to her, right, how much pain are you in today? Because with all these other injuries, she's in constant pain. And the only thing that gets her out of pain is exercise. So having that pain value, and now I've worked with her for nine years, okay? So I know when she's also telling a fib. I know when she's not telling me the truth. She'll go, oh, it's like a two today. I'm like, really? Is it a two today? And people forget that there there is that asking questions, reading body language, making sure that people are being honest about where they are right in space, but if they're so focused on goal. So making sure we're asking the right questions, getting the right answers as well, and having honest answers. That was fundamental to her progress getting back from injury. So, yeah, like I said, it was six months from knee operation to powerlifting competition. And that's probably one of the highlights of my career so far. That's a sick that's story. Her. I love that. That, that season sounds amazing. Yeah. I want to meet her now. Crazy. Amazing. Amazing yeah. woman. So much can be learned just from listening to her talk about stuff. Yeah. Because every week, I learned something new just by listening to her talk and her, her perspectives on stuff. It's great. Mm-hmm. I love that, man. And like you brought a couple of things that I want you like to kind of uh, talk about even more is um, it, it's the coaching aspect. Like it's a human aspect of coaching. Because mm-hmm. earlier on, you did say we, we discussed like goals are important to people, right? Yeah. But then Ask, you said asking the right asking the right questions and getting the right answers as well and kind of understanding like sometimes the goals need to take a uh, like a backseat if they're like you know if they're not taking care of themselves just because they have a goal in mind so like finding that limit of how important the goal is to the person and then having their best interests in mind so once you talk a little bit about that and also like that's a that's what comes from coaching that's the difference between writing a program and coaching someone agreed that's there is that human element. We need to have these conversations. These are human pe- human beings, and they have feelings about these goals. I know I'm, personally, I'm very emotionally attached to my goal. 
And if someone said I couldn't do that goal, I'd be right brassed off. But you've got to also look at it from an objective point of view, not just that subjectivity of taking away that emotional attachment and understanding that it will come, but it's got to come at the right time when all our ducks are in a row. Okay. So you've got to be healthy. Like health comes first before anything else. If you're not healthy, if you do not have your health, you have nothing. Right. Um, and then, you know, we're setting things up over a period of time. But if something takes a nosedive, it's like, well, maybe the comp isn't the right thing right now. Mm-hmm. Just take a step back. Maybe doing a photo shoot isn't the right thing to do right now. Maybe we have other things that are much bigger priorities. Just because we're not going to do it right now doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It's just there's bigger things we can address than peaking for a competition or whatever else it's going to be. Goals take time and they have to be lined up appropriately because no one wants to go to a competition or a photo shoot or whatever it's going to be and not achieve their goal because there's nothing more disappointing than going and performing not at your best or not being at your best for your goal, knowing that you could have been so much better. Because all that does is it then, I'm going to bring it back to this, it just knocks the confidence. And as soon as that confidence dwindles, it's so hard to get it back. So asking the right questions, understanding where that person is, and making sure that they understand that it's a sequence of events that you arrive at your goal. But that goal can take shorter or longer. Some things are within your capacity to control. Other things are not. You've got to let things play out. Time's the only thing we don't have control of. If we have everything else mapped out, it will come. It will be there when it's ready to be there. So actually, because we're talking about injuries. Um, so the other, so a week ago, I, I was deadlifting and <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah, Mahan's laughing in the background because I told him this too. <laughs> He's just laughing at me. So, well, the way I took the injury, not the, not the injury itself, but basically I've never been injured before. So I don't know like what, what it means to be injured. And so I did one, two extra reps. I was supposed to do five reps. I did seven reps. Um, and I, I felt like I blew my back or I felt like my back was on fire, my lower back. And my left leg became like I couldn't move it. And so for that day and the next day, I couldn't do, I couldn't do jack shit. Now the pain has kind of subsided, although today I then decided to do squats with 110 kilos, which was stupid of me. But um, yeah, Simahan is again face palming himself. Um, so again, I think I reactivated the injury. Now I don't know what it is. I feel it's a pinched nerve. It could just be anything from a bulging spine. I, I don't know, because I've never been injured, right? So I so I wanted to just hear your thoughts on how do I get back into deadlifting without actually deadlifting because obviously I can't I shouldn't deadlift for a while but what movement patterns would you do instead I'd need to see your deadlift but if it's if it sounds to me like if you've like fucked your back 
probably need to learn to get better at hinging. So you could do an RDL to pins. So you're limiting your range of motion. You're giving yourself some external stability, giving yourself like reference point, right? No, I've got to stay tight here in that bottom position. So lats on, core tight, hold on the pins, and then back up again. Um, so if also like you basically you've blown a gasket, you've gone very close to this, very close to failure, you've flown very close to the sun, and we now need to just pull it back, rebuild that deadlift. And so if I was you, start to learn to hinge. So feel it out with light dumbbells. Dumbbells are very relatively very, very low stress. Start on one leg. So even more limiting the load. Take it way, way, way back. But all you're gonna do is if you've got no pain and you feel the movement was good, we progress the movement. So you go unilateral, then we go to bilateral, bilateral dumbbells, then we go from bilateral dumbbells, then we go to barbell. Then we start, then we stay in that hinge. Then we build that range of motion down. If you can stay in a good hinge while still doing the RDL, if you can stay in that good hinge pattern, then we can start to think about addressing from RDL. How do we progress that along that continuum from a hinge, make it a little bit more squatty and make it to the deadlift. So we'd probably go RDL. Then we go high handle trap bar. Then we'd go straight bar, high blocks, moderate blocks, low blocks to the floor. But without learning, without knowing what your setup is, what your sequence of events is going into the deadlift and having that checklist. I think this is majorly underrated, I should say. I, I have clients that are learning to do this. And the first thing I get them to do now is write a checklist of stuff that they have to do in the process of going to do a lift. As you get better, you can take things out because that stuff will happen without you thinking about it. I have a checklist that's probably three points long when I go to conventional deadlift. But I have other clients that have seven or eight points on their list for conventional deadlift. They need to set all these things in place for them to achieve it for every rep. And every single rep must be ticking that checklist. I did a set of deadlifts this week oh. and on one rep, I didn't do my checklist and it was the worst rep of the whole set. But I learned and I went, actually, no, revisit checklist for rep six, go properly. And that was a much better rep. So write down your checklist of events that sets you up to do a deadlift. Even now, when we're so, when you might be six weeks away from deadlifting again, but it's not the end of the world because you, you need to deadlift no, do you need to deadlift year round? Definitely not. There are so many other things you can do to build the prime movers of the deadlift that will still make it better. Fair enough. And, and just to make Mahan even more upset, that day was the only day that I didn't have a warm up. So I just went in it. <laughs> no. Like it's the one time I was like, oh, fudge it. Who needs a warm up? Yeah, this is why you need to warm up, right? Yeah, it's the one time I get injured. It's an interesting yeah. thing because. The day that I did my pec, I didn't warm up properly. I'm not going to name yeah. names, well, but there's someone I, I know who uh, didn't warm up for walking lunges with 40 kilo dumbbells and he pulled his adductor. Yeah. Adductors are the worst. Like, such an underrated and undervalued muscle, but bloody hurts when it does hurt. Now, the reason I'm like kind of 
with like you know withering in the background is like he's done his back in and now he's gone on squat and now I am meant to do his new block like he's bringing this injury to me <laughs> and he's like all right now deal with it like, not beforehand he had to go and injure himself before we're, we're going to get into his new tr- like to his training so so yeah <laughs> if we know we're gonna he's gonna go into a new block look at regressions in patterns that are going to put him into less of a hinge position. So if we think like squatting, does he need to back squat to get better at squatting? No. Take him to a front squat. Take him, don't take him to a goblet squat. That's too, like, he will not do that. Can, I can tell you now he will not just goblet squat. <laughs> take him to a front squat, tempo the fuck out of it, and he will still get better when he comes back to back squatting. Takes that load off the back, into the knees, into the quads, and he'll still be good to go. And the front squat will build his deadlift as well. Are you sumo or conventional? Uh, conventional. Okay, cool. So, like, if I was you, I would go, like, front squat for a couple of weeks then go and keep heels elevated. Uh, probably four to six weeks. Then progress it on from there. See how his back's doing. Introduce tempo, high bar, beltless as well as a follow-on from front squats and then go through the motions from there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good too because I get to do different kinds of movements and add some variability as opposed to the same set of movements. So, yeah, like what we were talking about earlier, you know, I've said it, I've said it to clients before. Like variety is well, it's the spice of life, isn't it? Like we want to have a bit of variety, but also like smashing the same patterns all the time is just going to lead to overuse injuries and building muscle in the same places we're already strong. If Somebody has a quad weakness, you'll see the hips shoot back in the bottom of the squat. So they're trying to load the posterior chain more. So how do you get better at not shooting the hips back? Build bigger quads. Put constraints in place that mean they are more knees forward and stay more knees forward for longer. How about pauses? Well, they have to stay in position. Even pin squats. Like, I'm not a massive fan of pin squats, but they work. Yeah, the Anderson squat. Uh, Anderson squat, so like that would be like a pin, basically a high pin squat, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I would put that in the same box as like a a reverse band squat. Do you really need to do it? Probably not. No. Handling more than 10% more than you would do normally in that position, it's too much. What about Frankenstein's? The bloody hell of that. Zombies. Uh, sorry. Uh, just front squats without the, yeah. Just a front squat. <laughs> not really any real benefit to having your arms out there than having your hands there or in that clean grip. I blame Martin Lysis. Is that the strongman guy who's like, he's been doing it a lot on his Instagram and now everyone's like, yeah, Frankenstein squat. Yeah. I'm like, he's I a remember when man. he was doing like Steinborn squat. Yeah. He started doing Steinborn squats every whatever they're called, Steinborn, Steinberg, or whatever squats they are. Everyone was doing those for a period of time. Like, yeah, it's cool, but he's not doing Steinborn squats to get better. He's doing regular squats, and he's just able to do that. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to like kind of bring it a little bit back, because you know how we said like in a competition, if you don't perform well, it's just kind of it messes with your head, right? And it's hard to come back from it. Have you had competitions like that before and like that kind of mess with your head? 
And also, if you did, I want you to talk about how you brought yourself back on, on top and like, you know, fought off with those thoughts. So, a uh, couple of things. Uh, bombed out a couple of times, dropped the bar. What's the first thing you take away? If you, if you have a habit of dropping the bar, you grip shit. Hands down. If your grip is subpar, nine times out of ten, probably more than that, you can look at somebody's training and go, they're using straps too much. Right? If they're using straps in the training and the grip sucks, take the straps away, therefore the grip has to get better. It's eliminating variables whereby people can be soft about stuff. Long holds on deadlifts are great, but realistically, just get used to holding stuff. It doesn't, like, it doesn't matter that it's not 200 kilos or whatever. Like if you're doing chest-supported rows with 15 reps or 20 reps, your grip's going to get better if you're holding on to those dumbbells. Yeah, there's different types of grip, like crushing grip and pinching grip and whatnot. But that's getting really specific. Just get used to holding stuff for a long period of time or really heavy stuff for a short period of time. Um, and the other thing as well that I've bombed for is taking stupid jumps and not having, uh, not taking things for the day. Basing off like really good sessions, feeling off on competition day, I'm not taking for what it is. Sometimes you go to a competition and you might not PR a lift. Nobody cares about the individual lifts because individual lifts don't win meets unless you're doing bench only. Totals win meets. Totals count more than anything else. So if your bench is five kilos less than last time, well, your squats on course, might as well take the same bench as last time. Match it or even come a little bit less and leave that gas in the tank. There's no point blowing your load every time. If you are, you're asking for a much harder day than needs to be. So uh, one of, my, I think it was my last, my last comp at 105, uh, a bombed on bench. is one of those things. Bit of a weird, it was a weird day. Really strange day. Squats went really well, but seemingly after the squat, I had no gas in the tank. Bench went terribly. Going on to deadlifts, because I carried on with a meet. I was not going to not finish the meet. I wanted to see what I could do on squats and deadlifts. Now, I trained the whole competition, sorry, prep phase, sumo. Went to, the went, to went to lift sumo and couldn't budge 180 kilos off the floor. I'm like, fuck, what am I going to do? I hadn't done any conventional work in 12 weeks. So I had to make, a, make an adjustment, go on the day and pull conventional. Ultimately, if you have a base, and I think realistically, that comes back to a baseline of fitness. I was the heaviest I've ever been. Didn't get there the, the healthiest, shall we say. So I pushed my weight up quite quickly. I think it was about 12 weeks. Pushed myself up about 96, 95, to towards that top end of that 105 scale. And it wasn't a good way to be. Um, there's been a few posts I've seen recently about not being a, a, a tube sock of, mass, of mashed potato. I can tell you now, for that 105 comp, I was a stock stuffed with a sock stuffed with mashed potato. It was not a good look. So corrected that post comp, but you've got to have that underlying confidence when you go when you do these comps. Comps will not always go your way. Lifts will not always go your way. So you've got to have that self belief that no, I can do this. Because as soon as that goes, you need to stop and reevaluate why you're doing it. 
So have a self-belief uh, and that almost cockiness that says, no, I'm supposed to do this. And you will do that in time. Like I said before, is it's only a matter of time. If you do your due diligence, do the reps, do the workouts, build the muscle, get stronger, build your technique. It will come in time. It's only a matter of time. Um, my first coach, he's famous for saying, having said, we're all built out the same kind of stuff. So kind of, if somebody else can do it, then there's a damn sight chance that I can probably have a go, have a good go at doing it as well. There's plenty of people built similarly to me that squat a lot more. So I'm going to have a good go at squatting more weight than I ever have done. And the only way you're going to get to do that is do stuff A you've not done before and do stuff you have done before better. So, and then it's just let time play out. But from a, always have that self-belief in reserve, have it in your back pocket. Like know you're going to do this and that it's just a matter of time. So whether it's a specific number, like my thing is I want to squat 600 pounds. It's 272 and a half kilos. So I want to do that sleeves and wraps. So it's a matter of time. I know I want to pull over 300 kilos. I know it's only a matter of time. I know I want to bench 160 kilos. It's only a matter of time. Because as long as I just put the work in, I keep turning over the stones that I'm not doing or turn them over better. It's all, like I said, like I keep saying, it's only a matter of time. Exactly. People are far too quick to jump to the goal. They're not, we don't want to be patient. We want it yesterday. That uh, instant gratification cycle that starts to come through, nobody really wants to do the hard work. And we've got to be, make sure that we're Staying patient, enjoying the, uh, this is going to sound terribly cliche now, but enjoying the journey because it is a journey. It's a, it, we, we're, we find things out about ourselves as we're doing this stuff. Right. You, know, you, can, you can say that you enjoy the hard work, but when it is really hard work and it's stuff that you don't enjoy, are you still doing it to the best of your ability? If not, then there's a rock you can turn over right there and start going, right, okay, it's boring. You might not like it, but it's going to get you better. So let's do the work. Exactly. Now, from that mindset, I'm just going to go a little bit deeper. This is me. This is what I do. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, every time I hear something, so I, was, I want to see like, yeah, Dan, like go to the, go to mindset of Dan after that IPF competition that you told me. And now, like a competition that you did, like uh, the one that the bench didn't go, yeah, the, the bench yeah. didn't go as well. Uh, I want to kind of look at both two mindsets. And like, you know, like you come out, either you've done really well or you come out and you've won the one of your lifts. And then what's the next thought? Like, what's the thought process? And like, what's happening next? Or like, well, what are the next steps you're taking? Right. So post-competition, bomb down. You have to take an objective look at what happened. If you take a subjective look at it, you'll just get frustrated and just repeat the same stuff. If What's the saying about history? If we don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. So look at why you bombed. So I bombed because I was playing the physics game. 
I went max grip width, max arch, max everything. And when you make trade-offs, because there are trade-offs, by going max width, you are playing the physics game, but you are going to be based entirely off your stability. If you bring it in closer, you are playing the biomechanics game. You create, you then rely more on muscle and output than you are on being stable. Like we move between that output and stability continuum. Like a close grip bench is all muscle really. Whereas a max grip width high arch bench is all stability. Like a perfect example is Sean Noriega. Look at his bench. It moves like that far. And it's amazing to watch. But he is playing so much on stability that if he's even like a millimetre off, it's going to play a huge havoc on his bench curve. If, however, you see someone with a much narrower grip bench, like look at uh, Julius Maddox. Uh, I mean, his grip is even still relatively wide because he's a huge human. But he has a huge runway to press off of because he has that relatively narrow grip for him. Like his hands would be out by the fucking play with the collars if he was going maximum grip width for him. But from a legal point of view, there is a balance to be played between biomechanics and physics. And people tend to skew one way or the other. They don't find that middle road. There is, so like a more moderated approach, particularly as you're coming through, would have been a better way for me to build my bench. I would have been benching much more, much sooner if I decided, actually, no, do you know what? I just need to not have some baby arms and build some pecs and then I'll have a bench press. It really is that simple. Don't play the biomechanics, don't play the physics game too soon. Build the muscle and then play the physics game if it's warranted. Because if you've got the leverages to bench close, bench close. If you've got the leverages to bench wide, bench wide, but only do so with a foundation of muscle beneath you already. So I remember seeing a video years ago, I think it was with Omar Isuf, and it was your ceiling is always going to be a technique. But how high that ceiling is going to be is how much force you can produce. So at some point, you can only improve your technique so much before you need to put some muscle on. And then it goes bump takes a leap forward. Improve your technique at that weight. Once you've maxed out that technique at that level, then we put more muscle on. Keep building more tissue and we get better. So having that objective perspective at the end of a competition prep, you can look and go, right, okay, this went really well, this went really well, and this went really well. Well, this didn't. Why didn't this go really well? Like, look at the training cycle. Look for patterns as well. Look for missed reps. Look for particularly bad workouts. Sometimes it's the timing of your training. If you're benching like four days a week, then maybe you're benching your hardest workouts are too close to other stuff. I know there's, I know there's a, a concept that's talked about in terms of not benching too close to heavy low bar squats. Like not taking heavy bench too close to low bar squats because it beats your elbows up. Now, I'd say that, yeah, okay, low bar is quite aggressive lift on your elbows, but realistically speaking, there are things you can do to make it less aggressive on your elbows. And by even like modulating the amount of volume you put through that elbow joint. So 
as a low bar squat, do you need to do all your volume low bar squatting? No. You can do some volume on your low bar squatting, but using the safety bar, modulating that position. So spending, like looking at stuff objectively and looking at stuff and continually analyzing your process. Because also one meet to the next, you're never going to be the same because you've done stuff to create an adaptation from the time before. So, yeah, I would say, I would say as long as you're looking at stuff properly and going through your notes, and that's the that's big thing is that people don't take notes anymore. They just look at spreadsheets and go, right, well, I'm going to do this today. Or they have a logbook that's just got numbers in it, but it doesn't, have you, it doesn't give you any, um, what's the word? It doesn't give you any information of what's going on around it. How stressed you were going into that workout. Were you more stressed from that competition? How was your how was your deload? Did your deload go as planned? Did you maybe take a bench two days too close to the competition? Did you get cocky and do a random gym challenge? You know, I've seen it done. And first competition, saw a guy bomb because he was doing heavy unracks before his opener. Guy bombed because he had 200 kilos on his back five minutes before his first attempt, which was 135 kilos. Does that guy have any, does that person have any business being under 200 kilos to desensitize himself to 135? No. Build your confidence with 135. So make sure you're able to take that lift and you can go in and make sure your attempt selections are perfect. And people that want to try and go always go for the PBs. So they make sure you've got to make sure that you are being objective about what lift selections you are making. So your opener should be like what everyday triple. Take that. If it doesn't move so well, then you have a plan B. You've got it right. Okay. Objectively, we've got to build a total. So there's no point taking the squat you want to take if your opener didn't go to plan or your second attempt didn't go to plan. Take a squat that you know is there. Build the total. Too many times, too many times, people get caught up on these massive goals of like, I'm going to squat 400 kilos or whatever. But realistically speaking, they've not done. It comes to the day, and we know that we know the strength fluctuates on a daily basis. It doesn't always. It's not always there when we want it to be there. We can optimize it. But some days it's just not. And there's nothing you can do about it. Take what's there that day and play the game. Not always going to happen on the day you want it to happen. So string it together over years and years and years, and it will come together eventually. As long as you're doing your homework. Exactly. Win or lose, be objective, I guess, and learn from what you you know what you've done. Exactly. And, you know, to, to an extent, like every comprep should be a learning curve and you should learn what works for you. And there's going to be like ranges, like everything works for everybody to some degree. Um, how much it works is another thing altogether as well. Like I know for a fact, if I squat high bar and I, squat, and I, and I PR my high bar, my low bar is going to go up. Like my high bar and low bar are also very, very close. Like historically they have been. I know as well, like, if my 
if my deficit deadlift goes up, my deadlift tends to go up. However, my, I never, ever miss a lockout anymore because my deficit is always so good. Well, I know I never have to worry about my, my lockout. What do I have to worry about? I have to think about what's going to get me better at starting off, starting strength off the floor. Heavy block pulls, kind of. But in recent, in the last four months, I've done some really heavy trap bar pulls. And trap bar is like, yeah, okay, it's a mechanical advantage pull. But I've moved loads I've never even touched before. And this last two weeks has been my first time back to conventional in nine months. And it's never felt this good. So that's telling me that my indicator lift for improvement on conventional could well be the trap bar deadlift. It could also be improving my front squat or my high bar pause. So look at lifts that are mechanically similar to what you are trying to do. Like I know I have a similar torso angle when I conventional deadlift to my high bar pause. So I know my high bar pause is going to carry over. Make the, like, the lifts aren't that different. Like front squat for sumo, close grip for bench press. People like, like we were saying before about hyper complexity, like it doesn't have to be super complicated. Pick two or three variations we know carry over in stages and just get really fucking good at those. And eventually your total will be exactly where you want it to be. Unless you're Lewis and uh, you do something to your back, but no. <laughs> Had to throw you under the bus, man. You just like called me out, but no, that was great. Well, thank you, Kasten. That was actually great. But I wanted to ask you one question unrelated. Well, actually, no, related to your injury. What does a pec tear feel like? It's a weird feeling. Like, well, it's, as it came back, it was just like a, a weird, it was like a stretch, but you didn't want it to happen. You didn't get a choice in the matter. It just stretched. And then you just felt like huge loss of power. It's like, Whoa, okay, well, that shouldn't happen. When it actually happened as well, like there was this weird irradiating feeling down my arm. I was like, whoa, this is not nice. I do not like this at all. I was feeling stuff in my wrist. I was like, this isn't nice at all. So, yeah, that's what that felt like for me. Everyone's going to be slightly different, but my advice, don't get one. Did it did it look different though afterwards? Like did it droop or anything? Yeah, or no, absolutely fine. So, like, I think the, I think it was more of, it was more of a strain than a tear. So, and if it was a tear, it was more mid range than anything else. Like taking my take myself through the mid range of the bench press. That was it was particularly when uh, abduction happens at the shoulder. Uh, yep. Yeah. So when we started to abduct, that's when it was not very nice transitioning more like off of the front delts and triceps in the bottom position and onto on, off that lengthened position pec onto the mid-range pec and front delts that was not very nice so but saying that the only way like i could get blood flow to the pec in north was doing shortened position style pec flies so getting plenty of blood in there taking it through that mid-range and that was that helped me that helped me boatloads absolutely fantastic variation for that but it's just finding what in that injury rehab phase it was just a case of finding what doesn't hurt hits the same muscles and then going to town on it 
and making sure we're staying out of pain. Give yourself a pain range as well. Like we say like 10 is I'm, I'm about to die. And one is like everyday, everyday life. If you're in that like one to three range, you're in a pretty good place. And if that number starts to come down over a couple of weeks, things are moving right. And that's what you want. But as well, like don't rush back up to what loads we're doing beforehand. Add it in slowly and build up to it over time. Won't take too long, but if your loads are down as well, increase your frequency. More exposure is ultimately going to help with the rehabilitation process. So, yeah, basically don't squat 110 while your back is uh, blown. No. If you, go, if you go squat, front squat. Less exposure on the back, the better. More vertical we can get that torso, even better again. Uh, uh, Mahi, did you? I yes, think you wanted to say something. No, it just it was when you were talking about the the, the benching. You know, when you said when you go to the abduction, isn't that like uh, wasn't it Dan Bell when is it Mark Bell? Sorry, Dan Bell. I, I'm getting two guys confused. Is Mark Bell, yeah. So yeah, he he did uh, Terry's peck as well isn't it like he went to abduction too soon from the bottom exactly so um abducting the shoulder too soon is one thing uh but abduction has to happen at the shoulder at some point in the bench press yeah can't avoid it it has to happen unless you're going to try and bend vertically which even then i wouldn't suggest it has to be some kind of j-shape what degree depends depends on your grip it should always be like Touch and then back to your shoulder, back to your head, I should say. Hmm. Um, don't want a vertical bar path, really speaking, um, because it's going to jam the shoulder into just not very nice places. So having that flaring back means we'll also properly use the pecs and triceps and front delts for our advantage. But we just get your timing right. I do have a huge deficiency in terms of uh, my pec strength is not up to scratch where other stuff is the loss of power off the chest i try to get off that mid-range pec and try and lengthen it and get into more front delts and triceps and that's probably where the problem stemmed from and building it back up over time means that i can spend a bit more time not fucking things up mm -hmm. the morale of the story right <laughs> yeah moral of the story look at what you're doing analyze it and don't keep fucking things up. Exactly. Again, this is a great message to anyone who listens to it, but also Louis as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> keep throwing it on. That's yeah, fine. I deserve it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With that, uh, Dan, I'm really sorry for what you're, what's about to happen. It's basically, we have the segment in the podcast that I come up with a fake sponsor because we don't have any sponsors as, as of yet right <laughs> we're not, we don't have animal t-shirts so like i mean i'm wearing a hybrid but they're never gonna sponsor us so i have to always like i started it 22 episodes ago and i it's it's become a thing and every time i do it i just feel really embarrassed that like the other <laughs> our guest is like what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> Right? Why am I on this podcast? Yeah, they're like and literally I can see it in their eyes. They're like, what the fuck? And every time it just gets worse and worse. I mean with uh Thayer we came up with Happy Chew, which was really good. Like he gave us a name. I was like, wow, perfect. Like it was like a 
uh, dog toy that like speaks to the dogs. But um, right, that sounds good. But like, yeah. So I'm trying to think of like some like I was playing around with the idea of a, a an edible deodorant. That is a fake sponsor for the day. But probably it'll give you food poisoning, so don't try it. <laughs> it's not a brush, man. No, but like for your armpits, like you would have it and it just like makes your armpit smell not, but just like, you know, where, where you, I don't know, it's a fake sponsor, don't ask me. Pet food. Sorry? Pet food. There you go. Mint. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We got a response. Uh, why do I do this? But yeah, with that then, I uh, any plugins, obviously, we were going to put uh, everything like in the description anyways, but if you just want to put a plug in for our imaginary listeners, uh, we would love that. <laughs> so if you want to like chat more about powerlifting, strength training or anything like that, drop me a message. It's my Instagram handle is at castingstrength underscore fitness. Messages are always open. Excellent. Perfect. All right, Louis, do you have anything else to say about your goddamn injury or are you done? <laughs> well, <laughs> no. <laughs> we'll take that offline. But we'll with take that offline. Oh, yeah. Leave that bit in. Yeah. <laughs> that, thank you so much, everyone. God. Thanks, guys. <laughs> thank you so much, man. And anyone who listens to this episode, uh, really appreciate you guys following this podcast if anyone actually listens to this. But yeah. Oh, you know, man, you know, man, you know, man.